Perhaps you're an innovator, a corporate innovator, who feels that they have unlimited budget, unlimited resources, but are not making any progress. Perhaps you're a CEO or a chef or <laughs> a head of a nursing project, and you don't feel that you have full control over the outputs of your team. Perhaps you're an SME owner who feels that they're stuck and stagnating with their revenue stream when inflation is rising. Or, most importantly, perhaps you're an R&D or a startup entrepreneur and you feel that you keep iterating, but you're not making progress. If that's the case, you are in huge luck today because we are joined by the world's best to get you unstuck and to help you make progress. And he's shared in this amazing book that we're going to discuss today. And you'll notice I have two copies. One of them is for you. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you'll be in with a chance to win a copy of Learning to Build. We are joined in this magnificent cinema in the Greenway in iconic offices in Dublin's Stevens Green. And we're joined by the brilliant Bob Mesta. Thank you. Great to have you with us, man. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excited, like we've been talking back and forth over the pond, and then to come over and be part of a conference, and then basically to do this, we get a whole whole afternoon to do this. It's awesome, and we're going to go for lunch. We're going to go to a Japanese restaurant. You'll find out why that's important yeah, as well yeah. in good. a little while. But it's it's so good. And the last time we spoke was for the Clayton Christensen tribute series, and Bob now is joined with us here. Ironically, when we were recording this. Bob's episode is just going to air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. today or this week, this week. <laughs> yeah, so we could have done it in in uh, person then, but we're going to focus today on this. But yeah. Bob does want to say something about his great friend Clay. Yeah, let's get started because I thought though I gave a little teaser to our audience about yeah. who this is for, but I actually thought about asking that in a different way. Learn from you, which is yes. what job does this book do? Yeah, for people. So. That's actually how I start all my books is what are the struggling moments people have and, and what are the things that, that um, I can provide as a solution to help them make progress, right? And so part of this is, is really, um, you know, I started out as a dyslexic, illiterate 18-year-old who basically was told to be a baggage handler at the airport. And I found basically four mentors who poured their knowledge into me to enable me to innovate on over 3,500 different products and services across the board, everything else. And so it's really meant to write it to a younger version of myself. So in it, I talk about young Bob and enlightened <laughs> Bob, right? And it's that aspect of like how I used to think and how I think now that I'm on the other side. And so it's almost kind of, you know, to my children, but to people who are innovators that are, that don't have all the experience that I have and my mentors are past. And so I have also this responsibility to kind of pass it on. Brilliant. So it's, it's, it really was a book of passion for me. It was very, very like a level of responsibility. And at the same time, just the fun to recall all these stories and, and share by, uh, you know, what, what we were talking about. I loved when you were talking about, so there's this matrix moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so take the pill. And, yeah. uh, but the pill really was, was your introduction to these mentors exactly. as well. And exactly. maybe we'll give that because that gives great context to where you are yeah. and, and how you got there as well. So I love the movie, The Matrix. Mm. And one of the things I realized is like, there's moments in your life where you take something and you can't unsee it. And so what I do in the first part of the book, I just say like, look, you just need to be ready because at some point I'm going to introduce you to things that you can't unsee. And so the reality is, is that that's really the intent is that these tools, once you learn them and, and, and these skills, you develop them, you just get so much better at it. But you can't see, like when somebody asks you a question like, do you like this? 
you're going to go like, well, that depends on context. That depends on where I am. It depends on what I'm comparing it to. And so you start to realize that question, simple questions you can't answer anymore. There was an episode of this series about Einstein. And mm. Einstein has this moment where he's kind of staring at the window and the teacher kind of goes, oh, young Mr. Einstein, yeah. so smart there. Yeah. Have you got the answer? And there's this like crazy equation yeah, up on a board. And he goes, oh, yes, he goes, you, but you're doing it wrong. And he tells, he gets up and he tells the teacher and the teacher ridicules him then as a result. Yeah. And I thought about that's exactly what happened to you, which is exactly. a catapult moment exactly. as well. Exactly. Let's unpack exactly. That. So one of the things that I learned very early at, at uh, 19 years old was design of experiments from Dr. Genichi Taguchi, who's one of my mentors. And he taught me how to frame systems in a way to literally... Uh, uh, not know much about it, but to how to empirically learn as opposed to theoretically learn. And so when we got to in school, we had this notion of building a catapult and we had to actually understand the right setups to basically get a ball, you know, three meters away and get it in the cup in a consistent way. And Taguchi taught me a way in which to say, like, you don't need to know how it all works, but here's a series of experiments to run to do that. And out of it, I end up you know, instead of changing one factor at a time, I change a bunch of factors at a time using something called an orthogonal array. And ultimately, I come up with an answer and my professor says, no, 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 you did it all wrong. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but this is what I learned on my internship and this is how I've been solving these problems. And he's like, you're supposed to fix everything and only change one thing at once. And he ended up giving me a D, though I did not actually have the answer he had, but mine was more consistent. Yeah. And it was one of those things that that was the moment where I realized, like, my professors are smart, but at some point, like... The, the, the real world has so much more to offer than just academia for me, for me. That, that, we'll come back to that because my learning was you, like Edison, the way Edison was, like he'd only change one thing and he was meticulous about yeah. change one thing, yeah. see the effect. Yeah. And you debunk that. That's, that's a natural way for us to learn how to build something is fix everything and change one thing mm. at a time. But the, it's almost like this notion of being able to, a, a networked society. It's like we can, if, if we change a bunch of things and we can see how it works, we can use math to, de, to, 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 to connect the dots. And so it's way more powerful. And I don't have to do a, a thousand experiments. I can actually do very small sets of experiments, which allow me to be faster and more efficient. I was thinking about that, and I'm jumping ahead now, but because yeah. I, I want to come back to 1985 when yeah. Bob was in that yeah, yeah. Uh, internship, because it was yeah. a game changer. Oh yeah, it was, it was. It was. It was. It was. Uh, uh, as my mom would say, is like I thought I was lucky. My mom reminded me I was not lucky. It was like I had to go get and work to get that internship. So. Yeah, amazing. But I, you, you made me jump to here because you were saying about like so. If I if I'm a systems thinker yeah. and I go, here's loads of different things that yeah. I can do, and then. I was thinking about, well, imagine in a world of chat GPT-10 yes. yeah, 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 yeah. that I can actually input that into a system that understands the systems that's, the way I that's think. Correct. That's going to be an unbelievable game. So, so I really think that uh, chat GPT is going to be one of those things that help us prototype to learn. Like mm. uh, most people are looking for the answer. But what I do is I use chat GPT to say, here, give me three different answers. And let me compare and contrast them so I can actually learn what, what's the real essence of how this thing works and ultimately what's missing. I think uh, this year will be kind of the year where we switch from knowledge to asking better questions. I think schools are going to start to have to change from being like, how do you memorize stuff? Yeah. to how do you ask better questions of, of the world to basically get better information? And so I think it's a really interesting kind of a time and age for us as, as, as we start to see these breakthroughs. I agree with you. There's um, this artist that I love. His name is Oliver Arnold's mm -hmm. amazing artist. And he played here in Dublin in the concert hall. 
and he has the, he, he hacked, he, right, you know, he's a skill you have, he's a hacker, and he, he took, he's a classical pianist, yeah. took, a piano, took a piano, and then he got a friend who was a software engineer yeah. to hack in a machine that was built for synth in the 80s. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what he did was he connected it to two other pianos, yeah. and what he programmed it to do was go, play, when I play this note, so if I play an A, yeah. the natural progression is a, a G minor or yeah, something, yeah. I, I don't know. But he's like, do something that a human who was trained in classical piano would not do. Yeah, yeah. And he says it just brings him in these different yeah, pathways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, that is what AI so, does. So that's where I, like, I, I'm a big jazz fan. And so mm. Phil, Thelonious Monk is the same way. Like his music is was, but he had it like hardwired to him. But that's that's where I think we're going to start to see these anomalies. And, and anomalies are going to become more and more important. Like, I, like Clay taught me that, you know, anomalies basically... It, in anomalies of the present is the DNA of the future. And that to me is just such a big, big Beautiful. notion of most people take anomalies and try to uh, rationalize them out and they, or throw them away. And I feel like uh, anomalies are those, those little things that just like, they're like the seeds that will turn into the next oak tree. Yeah, and you got to be listening for them. You've got to be listening. You've got to be sensitized to them. You've got to be able to appreciate them. And you have to realize that there's a lot of different perspectives you have to take on them. Yeah, and one of those perspectives was 1985. So that's great. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 1985, so I I, I was a freshman in college. It was a Christmas party of some sort. I sat down next to this old man, and I thought it was this my friend's grandfather i'd never met them before so i sat down and started talking to him and i asked him 52 questions in 22 <laughs> minutes because he reminded me and he, he just looked at me and said it turns out it was dr deming and he, he just looked at me and said boy you are a curious kid aren't you i'm like sure i had no idea i was going to japan and uh, working for ford and i was an intern that they taught a lot of the japanese methods of the toyota production system to and and I met Dr. Taguchi there, and then I met Dr. Willie Moore, who basically, uh, I was more or less on the front lines to help them go from 72 months of development time to 36 months. And it was it was just amazing frontline fun stuff. Brilliant stuff. And so let's share one of those with our audience, because yeah. the, the first one you experienced was the paint. So the oh. paint wouldn't stick. It was like an yeah, orange peel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a problem. It was on the Lincoln Continental, which they don't make anymore. And it was this, uh, it was at the, uh, the Wixom plant, which is close to my house or around my house. And they had a problem where they had almost $150 million of annual rework, where when they'd spray the car, it would get, um, you know, either drips on it because it'd be too thick of paint or it would be an orange peel where it's like it's it's pitting. And so you'd have to buff it all out and they have to repaint it and that kind of stuff. I'm an electrical engineer, so I know nothing about that. Um, uh, and so I go into a room and Dr. Taguchi teaches me these methods to listen for what he calls control factors. What are the factors that you can change that will affect the performance of the paint? And so there's all these PhDs of robots and uh, electrical engineers and the paint people are all in there. And I'm literally in the back corner just listening. Dr. Taguchi sitting next to me and we start to and, he, and, and we start to pull out these factors of what we can change. And long story short is we, we, we end up creating this, this designed experiment that we ran on the weekend that was a very, very complicated part. So it had flat surfaces and vertical surfaces, very similar to a car, but we just did it like a, a, a set of runs and changed like uh, the speed of the paint and the the temperature of the paint and the uh, the uh, there was a charge between the the paint and the and the and the substrate you're painting and so you'd change whether it's positive or negative and you'd change the voltage rate and all these different things and because I didn't know I, I literally was just like let's just try and everybody else had a theory of why mm -hmm. everything worked but once we put it together I was able to kind of help reduce the get more ultimately it was getting more even paint thickness no matter what the surface 
and and ultimately we're able to get the reduce the 150,000 or 150 million down to about 20 million. And it was I was an intern and so I became like a hero like everybody doubted it and and when I presented my findings they all said like that's not going to work and then it worked. And then Dr. Tuji was like, this is how new theories are developed. Because all of a sudden, once it worked, all the scientists and engineers started to go like, oh, well, why would that work? Oh, this makes more sense. And they'd yeah. have a new theory. But you can't actually discover new theories without creating phenomena, new phenomena. Yeah. And so that's really where, what I learned is, is experimentation is at the core of really being an innovator and not being afraid to fail, but being, being more excited to learn. Right. Yeah, it's I love that example. And you mentioned there uh, more because she was a yeah. massive influence for you. Yes. And what I loved about this was like, so I'm going to ask our audience, imagine there's a, a very political meeting happening and it's yeah. like about a project that's been failing over yeah, and over yeah. and over. And somebody invites the intern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then when everybody's asked who's responsible for this, the intern puts his yeah. hand up yeah. and it was a game yeah, yeah. changer for you so and for Willie. That's right. Yeah. So my very first, it was like my first week at Ford, right? And, yeah. and she's like, okay, we're going to go into a meeting here and just don't, don't, you know, don't say anything. It's like, and this was like a project that I was responsible for. I wasn't an intern at that point. I was actually an employee. But the aspect of this problem was happening and Willie just said like, I want you to go in and take responsibility. And I'm like, but I didn't do it. Like, I don't know what to do. And, and she said, like, look, here's the thing is once they give you response, once you take responsibility and people are willing to give it to you, now you have the power to solve it. And so that to me was the most impressive thing of what I'm sitting in a room. It's like my second week at Ford. And I'm like, you know, this is my responsibility. You know, here's what I think we should do. Here's why it, why it hasn't been done in the past. And the, the executive kind of looked at me and just said, wait a second. You know, I know this is your second day. How is this your responsibility? And eventually said, fine, you go solve it. And then everybody around me basically started to say, fine, it's up to the kid. And to be honest, it was great. Yeah. And it was very useful and very empowering. And so you start to realize that when people are in trouble, um, there's always a vacuum where people can walk into it and take power or take, take, take on the responsibility, if you will. And, and then ultimately, if you have the methods, to solve it is actually easy. Mm. But it's, a lot of times it's aligning people. So it can feel like in those moments that you're a scapegoat. Yes. But actually, it's a huge opportunity. It's the paradox. Yeah. You, you think you're going to get in trouble and it's actually you're actually getting the ability to be super, Superman. Superwoman, yeah, yeah. Right? And, and actually, there's a, there was another thing. So I share that. The reason that really resonated with me when I retired from rugby, my first job was head of a digital for a, yeah. a major media company. And it was really because nobody wanted to do it. That's right, that's right. <laughs> so everybody stepped back and I was left forward kind of going, and they're going, you own it, kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this is an interesting one. So I've been studying leadership for a long time. And most people who are leaders, they, they, they don't prepare to be a leader. They just end up being, a, like think of, mm. think of Churchill. Churchill, like at some point, stepped into the role. And so part of this is to actually understand like most, most leaders become leaders because nobody else is willing to step up, <laughs> right? And, and, and to be honest, it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book is because all four of my mentors are past and I feel like they were always in the forefront, but now that they're gone, I feel like, oh, I have that responsibility now to lead and, and to basically share and to tell these kinds of stories. Yeah, and you do it brilliantly. And Bob, there's more books on the way as well. Uh, and maybe we'll nod to those at the end of the show. There was a killer line by uh, Taguchi and you, Bob calls... Taguchi, the Dalai Lama of innovation. Yeah, I love is, that. But I wanted to share this line. So he said, looking at and focusing on problems is the wrong view of the world. All problems are really problems about the variation of function. Focus on what it's supposed to do, not what it's not supposed to yeah. do. 
there are infinite problems and only finite functions. There's a there's a lot in that. It's it, it seems simple, it, but it, it's it's. Uh, I'll say that when I first heard it, it took me probably ten years to really decipher all that. But the long and short of that is, nine times out of ten, when you focus on problems, you get rid of the problem and you solve another problem, mm. or you create another problem, right? And Dr. Taguchi, we used to call that whack-a-mole. Right? Yeah. Oh, we're just playing whack-a-mole. Like, like, no, we have to focus on the function. And so if we can actually, so think of the paint problem, right? If, if the paint is too thick, it runs. If the paint is too thin, it gets orange peel. How do I reduce the variation of that? If I get, cause what we would do is we'd solve one problem of runs and then we'd have orange peel and then we solve orange peel and then it'd have runs. And you, and you realize you have to reduce the variation of the product and the, and the thickness. And, and ultimately once you can focus on the function, it actually makes it way easier to solve everything. The problem is, is the variation is always usually very small. I mentioned earlier on about the whole idea of, um, my understanding was like, Edison was the best of them all, and he was yeah. very meticulous in, in solve one problem. Did it work? What was the output of yeah. that problem? And and you're like, no, 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 no. That's that's the I, old way of thinking. I don't uh, think it was the old way. I think of like it, it's context. The context Edison was in. He he used some great methods to do that, but he didn't have math. He didn't have computation. Mm. He didn't have Excel. He didn't have so. To me, as as innovations come to fruition for everybody else, there's there it allows us to. In, uh, to, to develop new methods to do that. And so, you know, if, I, I feel like if, if um, I, I, or Edison would have had that ability, he would have had, he would have figured that out, but he, but he just didn't have access to that stuff. I mean, one of the things about coming here to Ireland, you start to realize like we we're just at the book of Kells, right? Mm. And you realize like, you know, a thousand years ago, the only way to get a book was to have it copied by a monk. <laughs> <laughs> right and then it wasn't until you could actually then get the printing press and now all of a sudden it's to the point where we can write and we don't even need paper anymore and so you start to realize that that people innovate the best they can in the in the context they're in and to realize that as your context changes you need to be thinking about what you need to do differently from the past and not say that it's wrong like i don't believe what so clay taught me very very clearly that you know, there is no really, in that case, wrong. It's more like they did the best they can and we with can do tools, better yeah. with the tools they had. Yeah. And so it's context that's really important to realize that there isn't good and bad. It's more like that's the best they had at this point in time, but now we have these other things. What can we change? A great point. And that goes to what you were saying about education. So if the tools now are like ChatGPT, yeah. mean, that's like Google on serious steroids. Exactly, exactly. So the question becomes important. Think about how hard it is to frame a question. There's And, and you think about there's levels of questions and there's easy questions like, how are you today? What's the weather like? There's But then when you start to think about it, like, what should we build next? Those are really complicated, hard questions. And the harder and deeper questions require more and more uh, input. And so to be honest, it's one of those things where I feel like we're going to get past a lot of the superficial stuff mm. and now get down to the meaty stuff. And at the same time, like uh, I think people are saying like they're going to lose their jobs, right? Because like ChatGPT, copywriters and, and different people like that. But the reality is what it's going to do is it's going to force us to go higher into mm -hmm. our abilities of, of the higher end of the market and let the low end of the market take care of this part so we can move up. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's actually a really good sign of progress. I'd love to share some of the concepts of the book before we get into the five skills that Bob shares. Yeah. The the idea of control factors versus noise factors, yes. and I'm going to share up on the screen here a brilliant diagram. And yeah. There's a lot in it. So, so most people would say they understand systems thinking, right? Inputs, we got some system, we get some output, right? But for me, and between Taguchi and Deming and everybody else, it, like the, it it became bigger than that, and and most people think of systems as 
like almost like the, the physical, the engine or the transmission or, or things like that. But in software, the system is very, very modular. There's many of them. And so how do you actually think about them? The other part was to not confuse the output with the outcome, right? Meaning, so for example, I've recently lost a lot of weight. And when you start to think about that as a system, losing weight, the output in the metric is my, my weight, uh, 212 pounds at the time, right? But at the same, when I started, I was 280 pounds, 285 pounds. And what you start to realize is like most people are like, I knew I needed to lose weight. I know that I, was, I had bad habits, but it wasn't until I changed the outcome, which is I want to go ski with my kids and I want to be able, and I'm missing out because I'm so heavy. And that that's the thing that actually drove me to actually lose the weight, not the fact that I'm measuring the weight. And so at some point in time, I've lost that. I've lost that as a metric and I measure my sleep. I have a continuous glucose meter. I've done all these different things. And so that system then talks to what is the, the, the inputs, the control factors? What do I eat? What do I exercise? Um, you know, uh, how do I sleep, right? And so I end up creating these metrics that are lead metrics mm. that tell me that I'm way better than the lag metric of weight. Because ultimately, I just want to be able to ski down the hill without stopping, <laughs> right? But there's these other things in here called noise factors, things that affect my system, my weight system that I can't control. I call one of them alcohol. I love alcohol. Mm -hmm. I like to drink. I don't like to drink too much, but a glass of wine is good. But I want to, and what happens is when I drink alcohol, it actually affects my sleep, which is part of my system. And so at some point I have to figure out how to compensate or make myself robust to it. So I've learned how to walk after I have two beers, be able to do these different things to help me and my system be robust to the fact that I'm still wanting to have a glass of wine or a beer or a Guinness. I had, <laughs> I had three Guinness yesterday, but I walked 15,000 steps. It was amazing. You won't need to eat after the Guinness. That's no, 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 no. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I love that. Actually, it's so funny because I, I hadn't thought about it that way. And for me, for me, one of the, my moment of that, of the, my losing weight moment was not losing weight, but actually seeing that we're going to live longer. Yes. So every, every year I think we live longer. We add on two years of life, yes. you know, when it comes from the science. Yes. And my moment with that was like going, I had a brilliant guest on the show, Dr. Daniel Amen. He's mm -hmm. a brain oh, yeah, specialist. Yeah, 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 great guy. And he, he said, to, he was telling me about concussions because I got concussed a lot as yeah. a rugby player. And he said, he, he actually gave me this ultimate and was brilliant. He goes, do you want to be a burden to your children? Yes, when you're exactly. And, and I was like, going, wow. And that was my. That's the outcome. Yeah. That is that. That's like being able to see the outcome where versus is like, you know, you know, I might not, I might have a little brain fog. I might have a little, but, but what's the outcome yes. that's going to happen to this? And yeah. so it's, it's the notion of taking the systems and putting them in, in their context. And that's how they add value. The other part about control factors, so there's control factors, which are things that I can control, diet, exercise, uh, sleep, et cetera. And then there's noise factors, things I can't control or that I choose not to choose not to control, right? And so part of this though, is to realize that it, for, for me, the other part about this is it helped you actually understand boundaries. Like when you start to talk about a system, a technical system, like an engine and a transmission, the transmission actually has to think of the engine as a noise factor. It has to work within these realms of horsepower and torque and these other things. But at the same time, if I have to wait for the transmission to be done, then the fact is, is that I, I, the development is going to actually take 72 months. But what we learned how to do is do these things in parallel. And once we could actually develop the engine and, and transmission in parallel and then basically figure out how to connect them at the end as opposed to waiting till the engine was done and then developing the transmission. And it made just all the difference in the world. So this whole framework of, of how Taguchi thought about systems is so, so important about helping us organize the work.
right? And so that's really where I think to be able to do work in parallel. Mm. There's a, a key thing I'm going to show on the, on the screen here. So red line versus green line oh, development. Yeah. I absolutely love this. Did, and I was trying, I was try, trying to figure out: did was that the language of the company you were working with at the time? So no, I, I end up kind of shorthanding it to red line, green yeah. line, because I'd use a red marker to grow to draw one line, and I yeah. got a green oh, okay. line to, to the, do the other line. But but it was this notion of like, what happens is we started to realize that like they kept talking about our mentality was different between. Uh, so at the time, what was it? What we we're doing is we were studying the Toyota production system, and Toyota and Ford had a very unique relationship because after World War II, Ford helped. Toyota rebuild its uh, uh, plants in Japan, uh, very similar to what we have at the Rouge plant in Detroit. And so um, we had this ability to kind of collaborate on stuff we did in the past. And so when we went to, when we went there, the, the thing that they kept talking about is like, you know, we're, you're waiting for problems and we're trying to actually discover problems before they happen. And we could not wrap our heads around that until we actually started to look at, show me the design changes of the vehicle as it relates to the time towards launch. Mm -hmm. And we, we have this notion is that you get closer and closer to launch for us, we would literally make it work. And then all of a sudden it would be like, well, it works. And then we put it together and then it wouldn't work. And so we were waiting for all these problems to happen. And so what we realized is the the cost of a change was so expensive later in the, in the process that Toyota was developing it in 36 months. So they could develop two cars for every one we could do, but they also were, so much cheaper in how they did it because they made the product fail way earlier in the process by actually doing designed experiments. And so it's this notion of to, to truly be proactive, you have to actually cause problems and cause failure as opposed to wait for it to happen. You're going to think I'm, I'm a sadistic here, right? So <laughs> my, my son, they got this amazing Lego kit, right, for, for mm -hmm. Christmas a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. And I, I could see so he, he had this thing like, oh, I don't need to look at the instructions. Yeah, yeah. And I saw he put a piece in wrong. Yeah. And I, I could foresee the, the yeah. red line. This is going to be disastrous for later on. And I let him make the mistake. Yeah. And I was like, kind of going, I have to let him know you need so, to look at the instructions. So this is why, by the way, that's what I think a good parent does. A good parent doesn't step in, right? Because every time you step in and prevent a problem, they you actually rob them of a learning experience. Big time. And so part of it is, is to say, I'd rather have my child learn to put the wrong Lego piece in the wrong point in time there, because 20 years from now, it's going to be something actually way more important. Ikea furniture. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because like, it was. Like, I did it myself. Exactly. Yeah. And, well, he had to take it all apart. You're like, oh, I've done that, right? Yeah. But, but that's part of the point of, this is where, like, I always, I always laugh when people use the quote, fail early and fail often, right? But if you actually talk to innovators or entrepreneurs, they never think of it as failing. They always think of it as like, boy, you failed at this, you failed at that. I realize that most of the time, people who are studying innovators, it's like studying animals in a zoo. Like mm. they're, they're not in it. So they don't know what you're feeling. They don't know what you know. They don't, and they realize like, you're like, oh my God, okay, I just learned that. And, and, and they're looking at going like, oh, you failed. Oh, you failed. So it's this notion of most entrepreneurs never fail. They just learn. Yeah. Right? I was thinking about this, like I, I was taking it out of the context, and this is the lovely thing about your your relationship with Clay, yeah. is that you learned that the theory is a lens, and actually your framework is a lens yes. for me. And, and I was thinking about innovators and corporate innovators, and what a corporate innovator will do is, is try and build something knowing that it's almost like there's sands of time are ticking, and yes. it's like kind of going, oh, I got, I got permission, I gotta go and do yeah, it now. Yeah, yeah. And you go back to what Taguchi and what your experience was, was that everybody's in their swim lane 
of, you know, I'm in production and yeah. I'm in sales and yeah. stuff. And, and you've got to get them all together in the same pool. And, and build alignment. And then, and then actually think green line about it. That's think right. about the system and who do I need to talk to? Who, do, who f f Starting from right to left, yeah. instead of left to right, as yeah. you tell, and maybe you'll unpack that for audience. Yeah. But that is so important. And, and we don't do that as innovators. We try and kind of go, 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 go. So, so this is, but I, th I blame that back on education because mm. I think education rewards the answer and the solution. And nine times out of 10, when you're creating, there is none. And so most, most people think innovation starts with, oh, I've got this technology or I've got this answer. Who wants it? And, and what I've learned is that's the actually wrong way for me to go about it. I actually start with where are the struggling moments in people's lives? What are the things that where they want to make progress and they can't? And then how do I actually go find technology to fit into those moments? And so it's ultimately the struggling moment is the seed for all innovation. And if we don't actually focus on that, trying to, like I can invent a, a new technology and try to bring it to market, but then I got to go find eight of the 8 billion people in the world who want it. Mm. But if I actually talk to people who have this problem, I can actually see how many people have that problem. I don't have to go find them. They're already there. Right. And it's so much easier to innovate that way. And so for me, it's always about, and most people who are satisfied can't see the next solution. Right. So what happens is they, they end up, um, you know, it, 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 at some point we end up innovating, going like, and, and I'll show it to you and you go, oh my God, that's cool. Cool is like the kiss of death because that means you don't even know how to articulate how we'd use it. Right. And so ultimately I want, I want people to, to realize like struggling moments and I've been studying them for 40 years. It is probably the most powerful thing I've ever, ever uncovered and it's just so rewarding and 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 you know i'll say yeah. for me and profitable for the companies yeah yeah. yeah yeah oh yeah yeah i think i think it's it's a win it's progress it's yeah. it, it's it's all three yeah. the 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 other part is an is a corporate innovator one of the hardest parts to admit is when we plan a project we're actually the stupidest we can be <laughs> And we have what we call a set of imagined tasks that we actually kind of, you know, here we have to do this, we have to do this. But two weeks into the project, you discover a whole bunch of new set of tasks. And you start to realize like that project, which I thought was only 100 things, is now 200 <laughs> yeah, yeah. things. And all of a sudden I have fixed time and money and what do I do? And so it's the aspect of realizing that, that real creation is about guessing. It's about actually learning how, like being able to uncover the unknowns and, and actually answering the unknowns. It's way more about that. And, and so Taguchi would talk about the job of an engineer is to actually generate technical information as quickly as po reproducible technical information. And so ultimately, how do I answer the unknown? So when we frame a development project, I don't talk about the project management side of it. I talk about what are the big unknowns we have to answer this week? Yeah, and as we as we eliminate the unknowns, all of a sudden the execution becomes easy. But isn't it one of the problems that you know it's the bias for action that we have? It's like kind of yes, going, by doing stuff, I'm making progress, and I'm showing to them, whoever that they might be in charge of you, yes. that look, I've done this and this and this. And you're kind of going, yeah, but you haven't met that meaty problem that you know is coming. That's right. That's what. Well, but you make promises too. Like this product will generate, you know, 200 yeah. million in sales and here's where it's going to do it. And the real is like, we just don't know those things. And so we're making promises we can't keep, which creates regret. Mm. The other part is to realize like at some point, fixed time is way more than fixed budget. Meaning if we fix the budget, we typically will vary the time and vary kind of the scope. But I like to work under the premise of fixed time, variable scope. Like we, let the team decide the things they can do within that fixed amount of time to make the most progress. Yeah. And that works just phenomenally. 
And that, that word progress that Bob uses, so Bob was one of the chief architects of the jobs to be done theory. Yep, with Clay. And we've covered recently with Taddy Hall, yeah, the yeah, co-authors, yeah. well, and Karen Dillon yeah. and Clay, the book Competing Against Luck. And that's how the book opens. This is a book about progress. Yeah, you know? exactly. And it, it, it catches people off guard a little yeah. bit. They're going, what? This is about innovation. But that's actually that's right. your, part of your definition that's of progress. Exactly, yeah. exactly. There's a great line I have to share here, and it's, again, in Bob's new book, <laughs> uh, Learning to Build. It's the myth about failure and innovation. And this, this is something that I've fallen for myself and I need to share for our audience. There's a mantra in the world of innovation that says, if you're not failing, then you're not innovating. But failure by itself is not a rite of passage to becoming an innovator. It's learning that comes from failing that makes someone an innovator. That's and this right. is just articulating what, what you said there. If I leave a failure on the table without uncovering why, then it's a waste. Making failure useful is the hard part of innovation. In your experience, you say, great innovators are obsessed with understanding why their system failed yep. because they see it as an opportunity to learn. I love that. That's right. It's right. They're, 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 they're learners at heart. And they're, they're curious at heart. Like everybody say like, well, what's curiosity? It's just, to me, it's that fact, that passion of like, I, I need to know. I, I want to, I like, there's like things like my, my, my family is, uh, they, they know me obviously very well, but one of those things, when I get curious, they kind of know like, okay, let Dad just go. Cause he's going to, he's going to go way <laughs> down, too the rabbit deep, hole. down the rabbit hole. And I love the With rabbit his matrix hole. T- matrix exactly, pill, exactly. Yeah. A, a little, yeah, that's right. A little bit of Alice in Wonderland, a little bit of matrix and we're having fun. Um, but that, that actually speaks to something really important. You, you mentioned that there's a book you're writing, you're writing at the moment yep. and when you when you mentioned that to me, and then I read this line, I was like going and going. If you're an innovator at heart, and you're stuck in a corporate role, yeah, and you're not feeling like you're making progress, yeah, it's toxic. It it doesn't feel yeah. right it, for the, people. The, the, well, I think the thing is 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 that the the where you stuck in a corporate role, right? Because I think part of it is is to innovate, you actually have to you know be outside the box, and corporations yeah. are are really built around scale and structure. And so you're you're almost the anomaly inside the organization, mm. and and if you cave to that structure too much, you end up just having incremental innovation as opposed to disruptive innovation. And so part of this is realizing like your role to do that is 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 really to push the boundaries and to understand where where how far is too far. Yeah, and actually one of the things uh, we're going to go into the five skills now, <laughs> and I actually think one of the most important skills if you're a corporate innovator mm-hmm. is empathy because. Yeah. You can be a little bit like, they're dinosaurs, they don't get it, we're not moving fast enough. And you might be right, but until you unpack how they see the world, yes. you can't even get them on your team. That's right. And empathetic perspective is the skill you yeah, call out, yeah. and it's so important. So so this is this is one of those things where I, it took me a long time to learn, but to realize, like, so the way... The way I was taught was to come up with an idea and then convince everybody else that my idea was the right answer. And, and again, being dyslexic, not being the best, relatively smart in terms of academic smart, like I could never do that. And so what I would always do is, is I would actually try to get every, where everybody was coming from and then find what everybody was struggling with and then build alignment around that. And you start to realize that, that empathetic perspective is seeing things from other people's perspective without your judgment on it. Mm. And so can I see it as it, like if you're making dinner, like can I see it from my kids' perspective of what will they eat and not eat? Not what I would eat or do I want them to eat. It's what would they eat or not eat. And so part of this is truly being aware of kind of where is uh, the VP of engineering come from? Where's the VP of manufacturing coming from? Where's the, where's the VP of, uh, of accounting or finance coming from? And understanding what does progress, because 
One wants to spend as least amount of money as possible. One wants the best performance and one wants it the easiest to make. And you start to realize like, how do we actually align it from that perspective or at least realize the trade-offs we have to make so we can do the best, make the best decision? Yeah, it's, it's, it's such an important skill, not just in the respect of being an innovator or an entrepreneur or a creator, yep. but actually as a husband or a father yeah, exactly. or a friend exactly. or, or a son exactly. or a daughter. Yeah. It's, it's so important. But you mentioned there, there's four forces influencing progress. And I wanted to do here was ask our audience to think about anywhere they're stuck. So yeah. maybe a CEO or a corporate innovator, or even if you're a startup founder and you're not making progress. Bob asked these questions. Are you experiencing, or do you understand the push of the situation? Yeah. The magnetism of the new sol uh, solution, the anxiety of the new solution, which is huge in yeah, corporate it's, it's change. Actually, it actually creates friction yeah. to, to the change, right? And then the last one is the habit of the present. Those, right. Understanding those four skills in corporate change initiatives yeah. or in any kind of trying to get people to adopt a new idea is core. Exactly. And so part of this is actually, it's not just the progress, but there has to be a struggle. And that struggle creates the push. Like if, if you're not struggling and I tell you about my product, you can't eat, you don't have a place for it to sit, right? So Clay has a great phrase. He says, you know, questions create spaces in the brain for solutions to fall into. And the struggling moment is that it's that drill that carves out a space for you to go like, yeah, you know what? I do need a better way to do this. And then you can start to see things, right? But without a push, there's actually no way to actually for you to actually figure out how to change. And change is hard, right? So part of this is also when I see the push and I realize I need to do something different, picking what to cho change to is equally as hard. And so part of it is understanding what are the things that are pulling you towards one solution or another. So I consider those two things the fuel of change. But then the second part of it is the friction of change, which is if those two things help me make change, there's two other forces, the anxiety of the new, like, well, what do I do with the old one? How much training do I need? Like all these questions come up and that creates the friction that keeps people from changing. And then there's the habit of the present, which is the things they love about the current solution that, that keep them from changing. And so you have to actually frame the, so I think of it as framing mm. the systems wrapped around people of why they change. And once you understand that, you start to realize that like most people, like the thing I learned in business school was the way to get people to, or to sell more is just create more features, which is more pull. But you start to realize when I create too much pull and too many features, I create anxiety because they don't need it all. <laughs> we were talking about Da Vinci. Yeah, yeah exactly, like, yeah, exactly. So they keep adding features yeah, and then yeah. you can't use it. It's like, oh, I need something simpler. And so yeah. it's, it's all these things where you start to realize one of the ways in which to actually get people to, to help make them make progress faster is to reduce the friction as opposed to creating more magnetism. You've, so you've teed us up nicely for yeah. Jason Fried's line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you're better off with a kick-ass half than a half-ass hole, right? <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just a great, it's a great way to think about it. And you start to realize that some of the best products in the world had very poor quality on certain dimensions. Think of the first iPhone. Mm. It, it, it had, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a phone, it was internet, it was a music player and a PDA, right? But it had no text. <laughs> the very first version had no text. It came in a software update later, but they decided to launch it without it. Mm. Most people are trying to wait to make it perfect before it gets there. But if you have the kick-ass half, there's no reason to wait. The battery life, by the way, sucked. Yeah, Dude. it was a terrible phone. <laughs> As a phone, yeah, yeah, the yeah, connection yeah. was... The connections were, yeah. the, the antenna side was, but it's still because it was a, a sense of progress on so many other dimensions that they actually bypassed some of the, the things that they did like. And oh, by the way, they were fast enough on the iteration side to actually make, to make up for those. And let's be clear, the first camera was horrible. I mean, but it was better than no camera. 
And eventually, now the phone is almost all about the camera, or more about the camera than it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. You've teed us up nicely as well for the next one, which is uncovering demand. Yeah. And I thought I'd ask our audience here as, as well to think about what do you think the difference is between a Snickers <laughs> and a Milky Way? Because Bob will teach you yeah. about uncovering demand with that answer. Yeah, so what's so interesting is there's something called the supply side of the world and the demand side of the world. And when the supply side of the world is, is where we sit as builders and manufacturers and companies and businesses, and we bring our things to the demand side and con consumers and businesses pull those things into their lives. And so from, from the supply side of the world, Snickers and Milky Way are both in the candy aisle. They're both made with the same, uh, you know, almost the same chocolate. They have same caramel. They have same different elements to it. But what happens is when you move to the demand side of the world and ask when, who, who, when, where, and why, you start to realize that Snickers does not compete with Milky Way at all, right? You start to realize in the moments where you have Snickers, it's like, I missed a meal. My stomach is growling. I have a lot to still do. I don't want to spoil my next meal. It's like, it's a replacement for food, right? Versus a Milky Way is usually happens after a bad emotional uh, experience, <laughs> bad or good. It could be a celebration. It's usually eaten alone. They're usually hidden. Put, people don't want them to do it, but it makes them feel good. And so you start to realize that, you know, Snickers competes with an apple and a sandwich and Red Bull and coffee, where uh, Milky Way competes with a glass of wine and a run and like all the, and a brownie. And you start to realize they're just completely different competitive sets. And so what we mean by uncovering demand is, most people think the product causes demand. And what I would say is the struggling moment causes demand and that ultimately there are opportunities for you to so see the struggling moments and that, that un at some point we need to uncover where the struggling moments are because that's where demand is, irrelevant whether there's a product or not solving that problem. What I loved about that story that Bob shares in the book, the Snickers versus Milky Way, was that if you're a thinking about it as a whole, as an organization, understanding what problem it solves, yes. or the struggling moment, actually helps your marketing. That's exactly, that's exactly right. So in Milky Way, since they did the Betty White commercial, which was a bunch <laughs> of guys playing uh, flag football and somebody like, you know, uh, like, uh, they had Betty White out on the field as well, and then they peel it open and they give it to Betty. Uh, they give it to Betty White and turn it back into a regular person. So the interesting part about the commercial was it wasn't about making somebody great. It was just getting them back to themselves, yeah, yeah. right? And so it's this notion of like, like get back to being you and move on. And it's and it's it. I mean, it's it was an amazing commercial, and they've done they've done done more and more of them. And it's humorous, but it allows you to remember the moments when you're supposed to eat a Snickers. One of the core messages Bob talks about, and this is often not, you don't think about this if you're a builder or a creator or an entrepreneur, yeah. is that, okay, I need to, I'm building something new, but what does, and this kind of goes to that moment of, of you know, the habit of the present, yeah. pulling away from your current solution, yeah. is I need to fire something before I hire something that's, new. That's and I'm right. going to share on the screen here, yeah. supply side versus demand yeah. side innovation. So. To be honest, this is one of the biggest separations that helped me with my mindset around creating because uh, the greatest lie I was told as, a, as an engineer, and, and I feel like we, we train engineers to be arrogant and confident in their scientific approach to things, right? But the, the lie that I was told was build it and they will come, right? And to be honest, in my very early part of my career, I did that and it didn't work. And ultimately what I realized is that I can build it, but it's so hard to find other people to buy it and to, and to add value to it. And though I might buy, think I understand what they say, nine times out of 10, I didn't even understand what they say, said. So 
the, the, the demand side is to realize the mechanism of how people actually think about and pull products into their lives is completely different about how we actually sell and market and build product. And so you have to actually treat them as two different systems of how does it get pulled into the people's lives? And then ultimately, how do we actually define fit between the demand side and the supply side? And so part of it is, is most people start with the supply side and then they try to then find people on the demand side. And what I say is this is my right to left thinking where I start over here on the demand side and then figure out on the other, how to get to the other side. And, and be able to figure out what are the products to do it. And this is how you end up with a product that's not over-engineered. It's a kick-ass half. Because most, most of the time, you just keep adding features until you think you are good enough. Mm. And the reality is that, that they already know what good enough is. You're just not asking them. Brilliant, yeah. And it goes to the idea of going to Claysworth, Clayton Christensen, overshoot. Yes. Or sustaining innovation, Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so part of this is to realize that, again, I try to start all innovation projects and all entrepreneurial. So like I, I, um, I advise like Techstars, like, which is an oh, incubator for, for basically a whole bunch of different startups. Yeah. I've been doing it for almost 10 years now. Wow. And part of it is, is they all have an idea. And I basically I let them explain their idea. And then I said, all right, now let's go to the demand side. And I forced them to go talk to people who are in the struggling moment and had tried to solve that their struggling moment with some set of products that are not theirs, but would be surrogates for theirs so they can actually understand how to build it. And it helps them dramatically kind of reshape what they're going to build and almost think about the phases of product as opposed to like, oh, I got to make it this big. It's like, no, let's make it this big and just get it started. And it, yeah. it allows to build traction faster. Kick-ass half again. Kick-ass half. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a dramatic phrase, but it's actually more real than uh, you want to give it credit to. Yeah, and it's, it's definitely worked for Jason Freed. Yes, for sure. So causal structures is our, is our next skill. And this also goes, this, this reminded me of the work on Clayton Christensen as well as causality, the whole yes. causality. But you, you actually explain it brilliantly with an old Taguchi story of the Japanese story of the wind. Yes. And that actually made really sense. Maybe that's yeah, a good way to so, share. So, so one of the things is that, that so it, it actually starts with Deming. Because Deming, Deming would say things to the effect of, um, don't ever confuse correlation with causation. Well, let's just share how he was deaf and he used to share uh, yeah, 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 yeah. it. Oh out. my gosh. He was, so he was 85. I was like 18, 19 years old and he would scream at me and I didn't realize he needed hearing aids. And so I thought the man ha hated me and he was constantly, uh, you know, yelling at me and, and to this thing, that's how I remember having these quotes is because like, don't forget. I'm like, uh, okay. You're brave. And, and You're I'm, I'm literally like, I don't know what's going on here. And then like, you know, 20 years later, I'm like, Oh yeah, I remember that experience. And so it's this whole notion of that causation versus correlation. And then when I met Clay, Clay had the actual very similar kind of underpinning. Mm -hmm. And and it's interesting because lots of times, again, math people will end up correlating things and then they'll actually try to turn the theory into causation. But causation is the only way to build good theory. And so you have to actually run experiments to discover it. And most new phenomenon and new 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 causation has to be seen, it, it very rarely can it be done in theory first. Mm. And so this is why I'm a, I, I consider myself an empirical thinker, meaning um, I wait for the data. So like when I do jobs to be done research, for example, I usually don't go in with the hypotheses. I actually go in with no hypotheses to say like, I don't know the answer. Mm. And so I'm going to learn. And so coming out of it, I can frame hypotheses. So I'm actually... My, my lens is not about proving what I think I know. It's more about gathering everything I see and synthesizing it into the two or three different theories or, or causations of what causes people to buy a new thing. 
Yeah, because you don't fall for the confirmation bias. You, you also the, the world might have changed in the period from if you knew something before and yes. you had a hypothesis. Yes. The world's changed. Yes. But I mentioned there the the story, the, the Taguchi story of the wind. Yeah. But the wind story is, is that Taguchi would say shared something to this effect of like he says for for almost five hundred years that uh, they wouldn't cut down trees because they thought that trees caused the wind. Right. And eventually, because at some point they'd feel wind and the trees would move. And so that at some point they thought one was doing the other. It says at some point in time, until you can define causation, the fact is you're, 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 you're limited in your belief. And so they didn't cut down trees. They had very, you know, it was very much different time. And once they realized it wasn't the case, that they could do different things with it. But it's that aspect of correlation with the wind and the trees, but not knowing what is causing what. We have to share this because I loved when, so a lot of companies use Bob as an advisor for yeah. maybe unseen crises in the future yeah. or Gulf War, 9-11, yeah, 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 yeah. COVID. Yeah. And they call Bob the the, the fortune teller. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. The clean, the, the, in some cases, the cleaner sometimes too. But yeah, <laughs> the, wolf, the, the wolf, the wolf, the wolf, Pulp Fiction. That's right, yeah. Pulp Fiction, that's right. So, but there's a reason why, and, and this goes to your idea of the dominoes, yes. the, the thinking in dominoes and systems, etc. So yeah. maybe we'll share so, why. So, so here's the thing is, is it, this gets back to the concept of random. You know, when people like I hear the word random and the thing that comes to my head is lazy because what happens is, is when we say something is random, we're not willing to look for the causation. And so all that does is then it, to be honest, it robs us of time because then if it's random, we just wait for it to happen again. And so part of it is, it's the causation piece that then causes us to think about what it is. And sometimes we can't know. And so we can call it random. But the fact is, I feel like too many people have like almost like in a sales process, they think about, well, this person, uh, you know, I have a hundred leads that converts to, you know, 20 calls that converts to six proposals that converts to, and they think about that as, well, that's the causation. No, that's because you don't know what causes people to go of the hundred to get to the one, you don't know how it works. But to be honest, I've gone to like from a hundred leads to 40 leads and closing 30 leads. <laughs> because you understand causation. And so part of this is to realize like when we start to think about things in probability theory, it forces us just to wait for things to happen. Yeah. And so I don't particularly like the, the notion of uh, randomness or, or, cause everything is caused. It's just, we're not smart enough to know. Yeah. I, I thought about how in that moment, like, so for example, some companies who had experienced maybe a crisis, like I'll give you a good example. So Kodak versus Fujifilm, yeah. the silver crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And, when this happened, they got a glimpse of their possible future being a digital future. Yeah. And Kodak kind of got on, phew, that's over. Yeah. And Fujifilm went, uh-oh, uh, yeah. we need to totally redesign yep. the entire organization. And that's right. That's kind of what you're That's exactly about. right. And understanding what caused, like, the, at the time, what was interesting, it gets back to the S-curve, right? That, that digital was actually inferior to film for a long time. And so because of speeds and because of mm. sensors like and all the that. iPhone. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so it, it, at some point in time, you have to realize that Kodak made all its money in chemistry. They didn't actually make any, very little money in the, in the camera business. It was all about the, and to be honest, they set it up. So basically it, they would make all the money on mm. the chemistry. So when, it, when, when they got that, you know, the, they, the digital piece in front of them, they're like, but how are we going to make money? Because yeah. they never made money in the camera where Fuji actually made money in the camera business. And so it was one of those things where, where they, they were able to see kind of where it was going to go. And that, that, that's where you have to start to really understand both the struggling moment and the underserved to, to Clay's yeah. point of, of, you know, the people who want a camera, but can't have one, right? How do we get to that market? And because that's actually where it's a bigger market and they're less stringent. And so scale comes from the low end of the market, as opposed to the high end of the market. Like, 
uh, Da Vinci, if you will. Yeah. And you were saying this in the book as well, that like you want to capture a moment, your graduation of your daughter. Yeah. And yeah. you're like kind of going, I need to buy myself a camera. And then you're like kind of going, oh, oh. my God. And then you're kind of going... That's where Apple solved That's the problem. Right. That's right. Well, uh, so I had kids all played ice hockey. And so mm. ice hockey is actually really hard to photograph. And you can't have just a snap and shoot. You have to get a big camera. But then I had to learn all this language. I didn't want to learn it. I just wanted to take a picture of my kid. And so you start to realize that, that like if I had my iPhone today, back when my kids played hockey, I would never have had to gone down that path. And that's what, that's what they didn't understand. And that the camera market is off almost 85 or almost 90% in units in, in 10 years primarily because of the iPhone and the, and the Samsung mm-hmm. and all, all the phone technology. And, and to be honest, the, the, the onboard processing is kind of amazing. Yeah. There was a, when my son was born, my first son, there was a, a, a product called Flip. Do you remember Flip Yeah, oh yeah, camera? Oh, yeah. yeah. Flip camera. It yeah. was great because I got loads of photos yeah. of, of my son. And then the, the Android and the iPhone yeah, came yeah. out and you're kind of going, don't need this anymore. Yeah, and it right. just disappeared. It's right. Exactly, away. exactly. There's um the flip. I yeah, the flip, I yeah. have a couple. I have a couple of those. I my, actually so have look, one. My attic is full of all these old innovations yeah. that I worked at. I was like kind of cleaning them out the other day. There was a flip up there. And I think somebody acquired it and just killed it as a project. Yeah. yeah. So so uh, Oculus was or not Oculus. Uh, there was another one that was basically did the, a camera that could do infinite like f stops, and so it would be one of these things. And it was acquired by Google, and they just kind of wrapped it into the yeah. into the uh, Samsung phone. Yeah. So lots of cool stuff. But um, the next one is, and I, I was going somewhere with the camera stuff, so yeah. we had Steve Sasson on the phone, yeah. uh, on the show, who um, created the, the Kodak camera. You yeah. know, he's a 20-something-year-old, you yeah. know, uh, amazing story. But there's, he, he showed us the device, like, you can see it, it's like he hacked this together. Yeah, yeah. And he went around the organization, he's like kind of going to marketing, to sales, etc., and like kind of going, how long, did, how much did this cost to create? And it costs something like three grand or something yeah. and he's like kind of going yeah but you know moore's law and the prices yeah, yeah. are coming down and everybody shut him down but i i mentioned him because of the next skill which is prototyping to learn because yes. that creating something is better than having it in your head or that's a powerpoint right. slide that's right well and so i'm learning that prototyping is is this aspect of how do we learn mm. and how do i cause things to fail and how do i actually realize that so the, the big difference, again, it goes back to as an engineer, I was taught to only prototype to verify. So here's my theory. Uh, here's my set of prototypes. Prove it. Right. But when you get to the point of like, I don't know, how do I prototype that way? Yeah. And, and ultimately, what we learned, for example, in Japan is like, we're actually going to run a set of experiments that I don't know the outcomes. So I have this page in, my, in, in one of my notebooks from when I was in Japan. And it says, in the West, we, we test to prove our hypotheses of how smart we are or aren't. And in Japan, is we test because we don't know. <laughs> and it's like, it just, it, it just, I think part of being an innovator and an entrepreneur is you actually have to realize you don't know. And the more, and, and, it, and it's, what's interesting is the, the, the paradox there is that investors want you to be very confident. But at the same time, the more you can actually appreciate you don't know things, the faster you're going to get better products to market. And so it's this notion of like, you know, you have to have the face that you know, but behind the doors, you have to go like, I really don't know, but how do I learn? How do I learn fast? Hmm. So that's a that's a nice one to tee us up. And you kind of we've touched on this several times with the Jason Fried quote. But also you were saying about the Apple and kind of going, just get it to market because this next skill is making trade offs. And this is difficult if you're a perfectionist. This is really so. Difficult. I think I think that's actually the one thing. Is again, as an engineer, I was taught to be a perfectionist, and it had to be you know perfect. And the reality is, what you start to realize is like I can't do anything perfect. I'm limited in time. I'm limited in scope. I'm limited in money. 
And so ultimately, how do I identify and manage trade-offs? And what, what's so interesting is when you really look at successful innovators, like, again, the outsiders look at it and go, oh, you're compromising. And it's like, no, I'm choosing to do that. It's very intentional. I'm choosing to do this and let this go because I can get it to market faster. Or I'm choosing to do this and not that. And so it's this aspect of realizing I don't have to do it all. And I have a way in which to make sure I understand what not to do. And that, like, I think Steve Jobs said it best, like, you know, innovation is actually more about saying no than yes. Mm. And, but it's like, what do we say yes to? Mm. And that's the whole aspect of identifying and managing trade-offs. And really good innovators have that empathetic perspective. They have this notion of uncovering demand. They know how to actually uh, see causal structures. They know how to prototypes learn, and they know how to manage trade-offs. And what's interesting is very few people have all five of those traits. But when you study teams, the team has, somebody has all, like that, that set of traits is covered across the board by really successful teams of all four five of those skills and most importantly like you saw in japan they have the culture then to allow those people to speak up and make trade-offs exactly and call stuff out, and call yeah. stuff out. exactly well and I, what's interesting is i believe they had that in the six, 60s 70s and 80s i think they've actually lost some of that capability okay. because i think they're looking for hierarchy of who has the answer and it's usually the most senior person in the room who would say like i don't have the answer but uh, you know what i wish I wish I could hear everybody's input before I had to give the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. it's interesting. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. Yeah. So much humility involved. They're, they're so, all personal skills. But that's, human that, skills. That, I think that's the greatest gift I got from Clay was humility to realize like I'm like I, I like I didn't admit I was dyslexic or I didn't tell other people I was dyslexic until I was 35. And I struggled so hard with it and I tried to hide it for so long. And the moment that I kind of said, look, okay, let me tell you what's going on. I said, like, I can't read and I can't write. And they're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, mm. how can I help? I'm mm. like, holy moly, why did I not ask like yeah, earlier? Yeah. But, the, but the reality is the humility of not knowing is actually a gift. Mm. It's a gift to realize, like, even if I did it last week, it's like, I'm not sure it's the same. How do I actually, how do I actually figure it out? And so being very efficient about designing experiments and prototyping to learn and all that kind of stuff helps immensely. You mentioned the Steve Jobs quote about saying no, focuses about yeah, saying no. Yeah. And when I heard that quote, I, I thought about A, what, what in the context he meant it, but also in, if you have, if you, I'll use your language here, if I'm designing from left to right, yes. so from the future back to today, yes. if I'm thinking about the output yes. and working back to the inputs. I'll say the outcomes. You want to outcomes. focus on the outcomes and then get to the, what are the outputs I need to give to the consumer so they can get to that outcome? The outcome, yeah. So the outcome, the outcome yeah. thinking. And then I was thinking about, well, one of those things is when I, I need to say no to certain things because of the idea of the time box or time wall. That's right. And this links to play as well. And I, I love this context because unfortunately you lost your mom well, very, very young. I was 25, yeah. Yeah, and you told us this during the Clay tribute uh, that that gave you a new lens through which to look at life. Yes. And you gave yourself a very strict time box for 17, life. Right, to, as of today, 1,731 days left. Yeah. And so it's one of those things where it sounds like it's so funny. So everybody thinks it's such so morbid to think about your death day, right? What I've realized is that that for people who have had a near-death experience or some kind of mortality experience, mm. they value time so much that I just, I, I, I was jealous, right? It was like I, wanted, like, I wanted to value time. And I, as much as I could see the output of trying to value time, I had to create the outcome that would actually make me feel it. So I took my mom's birthday and her death day 
added to my birthday and that's what the 1731 days left is. And it's like, I'm gonna, if I'm gonna die, it's like, I wanna say like, I'm gonna die on that day, but it's forced me to get rid of like all the, you know, basically the people I wanna spend time with like you, like I'm making time to spend mm, time with people. I'm very that. intentional about where I wanna spend my time now. I make sure that I try to see my children as often as I can because when you start to do this and you do the math, the simple math of the five years, five years and I see my kids once a quarter, that means I'll see my kids maybe 20 times in my life. Like that's just not acceptable. And now if I die earlier that like I've done, I've been packing everything in. So like these books would have never come if yeah. I hadn't created that death thing. The same time, the fact is if, if I, if I live one day longer than that, it's bonus. So now I, so every way I look at it, I have positive energy wrapped around picking that death day, which is such a negative thing, mm. but it enables me to have such great behavior or better behavior for myself, as opposed to, oh, I'll do that when I retire, or I'll do that you know, when I'm 80. We don't know when we're gonna go. We don't have a choice, I don't think. Beautiful, right. I, I thought it, it reminded me of actually Clayton Christensen and the book, How Will You Measure Your Life? Yeah. Because one of the things he said, and I learned this from doing that series, was yeah. when he found out that, because he, he'd had all these terrible yeah. illnesses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he's like, now I can finally teach people, how will you measure your life? And use all the theories about your life so yes. you can have a better life. That's right. And that's, that's right. what you're that, your that, and well, and so I'm a student of that. And so mm. my whole thing is I've I've changed my metric from how much do I have in my bank account, what what experience to basically how many people can I help in my life before I die. Mm. And that's why I've gotten to the point where uh, you know, a dyslexic, illiterate person writing a book sounds a little bit strange, but like I found a company called Scribe Media who literally helped me just talk my books through think them through, we think through the job, the struggling moments, the jobs, what progress, what each chapter is a system. We literally use the entire book, all the skills to write the book. Yeah. And so it's, it's that aspect of being able to kind of do it. And so I'm just keep writing like, and so as soon as I sell enough of one book, I then have enough to start the next book. And so I'm just yeah. constantly doing, you know, so I've got like three more books already kind of coming, coming through the hopper. It's just one of those things where once, once you got it, once you, you got it. Formula. Yeah, 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 yeah it's yeah. a formula. Well. Like, so one is Demand Side Sales 201, which is, um, there are people using it, but Demand Side Sales is like, I want to know applications. So I've partnered with a couple of guys from Autobooks who've literally implemented everything that I've been teaching around it. And so we're going to write Demand Side Sales 201, and it's really going from zero to one in revenue. So yeah. the revenue playbook. And then uh, I got another book on prototyping to learn because it's like, it's just blown up. Like there's so many people who want to know about it so that I've started a class on it and I've started some different things yeah, wrapped around Harvard. it. Yeah, Harvard, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. all these different, but, but it's kind of like, people will say they're interested in it and I'll say, why? And they'll say, here's the struggling moment. And as soon as I see the struggling moment, like, okay, content. I, it, it's, I got enough content, let's <laughs> yeah, go with it. Yeah. So that's kind of where we're going. It's awesome. And for people who want to find you, Bob, where's the oh, best place? So uh, I've got a podcast called uh, The Circuit Breaker. I don't know if you've been listening yeah, to that, yeah. but it's, 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 that's, that's fun. It's me and my yeah. business partner of 20 years kind of riffing around certain topics and certain different things. And it's uh, about kind of taking a minute to reset and recharge and go a little deep, right? Um, and then uh, Amazon is the book, the, mm -hmm. basically the books I have, uh, Learning to Build, Choosing College. Yeah, um, I've got Michael a new, Horn. Yeah, with Michael Horn. Yeah. Big shout yeah, out to yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Demand Side Sales. And then I've got um, 
a book called uh, Hire Your Next Job. And we've been studying mm. people for the last six years around what causes people to say today's the day to leave one company to go to another. And we're writing it. Um, uh, I'm writing with Michael Horn again and mm. then uh, uh, Ethan Bernstein so that, that, and Catherine. And so Catherine Thompson from my office or from my group. Yeah. And so we're, we're kind of pulling that all that research together and wrapping it up. It should be out in 2024. Well, it's been an p- absolute pleasure. And I mentioned that Thank time you. well because I know how... How you invest your time yes. is really important, and I'm very, very grateful for now. And hopefully, we'll spend more time again yeah. together in the yes. future. The author of Learning to Build the Five Bedrock Skills of Innovators and Entrepreneurs, Bob Mesta. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for having brother. me.